everyone, and welcome to the Please Hustle Responsibly podcast. Uh, today, we have a special guest, Jason Hamill, joining us. Uh, you may have heard of him from Lula Cafe or from us talking about him frequently in this podcast. Uh, before, we get, <laughs> before we get into our episode today, I just want to do a quick mental health check-in with Christina and Christina. Magro, how you doing? You know, I'm doing great. Sun's shining. I feel like I say this every week, but like <laughs> the sun's shining. So I'm happy people are getting vaccinated. Our people are getting vaccinated finally in Chicago. So that's great news. We have Jason with us today. I couldn't be more excited. So I'm just a kid in a candy store over here. How are you doing, Matt? Uh, I'm good. I... Had I had today and yesterday off and was, you know, really enjoying spending some time outside. And uh, I get my second dose of vaccination uh, next week, which I'm really, you know, looking forward to the after effects of that. Not the immediate ones, but, you know, the long the long term ones. Uh, and other than that, just, you know, relaxing and taking it easy. Beltry, how are you? Um, I'm doing exactly the same as you and Mags. I am also getting my second vaccination next week, and I'm just really happy that spring is springing. <laughs> <laughs> Jason, how are you? Uh, I, I'm really good. I, I mean, I appreciate this check-in um, because I, it's actually the first time that I asked that of myself today. So uh, I'm good. I'm uh, taking my children to visit their grandparents, which they haven't done since 2019. Um, I'm bad, double vaccinated. Look out for that second dose. It can be a can be a slugger. Um, and uh, so my parents are, and uh, so it's really great to be able to take them, you know, today and see them. Uh, and I don't know. I'm happy to be here and uh, talking about these these things today with you all. So it's a good day. Well, we're super grateful to have you here. Uh, as I was saying earlier, we, we we do reference you quite a bit when we have these conversations because we look at you and, and Lula as like kind of these these up here people, these high high tier people that we all kind of aspire to to be like because you're just the shining beacon for independent restaurants and and how it should be in this industry. Uh, but for those of the for those of them listening that don't know about you and Lula, uh, do you mind telling us a bit about yourself and how you got started in hospitality? Sure, sure, I'd be happy to. Um, I'm from the East Coast. I'm from New Haven. Uh, I moved uh, out to Illinois to study writing in the '90s with David Foster Wallace, and I ended up getting a job at a. Uh, what was basically like a California pizza kitchen because I ran out of money in normal Illinois. And uh, that's where I first started cooking. Um, and then I cooked just to sort of try to um, pay the bills while I was writing. Uh, and eventually what happened was I moved to Chicago and the first, very first place that I went when I came to Chicago was uh, a small coffee shop. Um, and the the moment I walked in, I knew that I had found something special and it, it was a, a sense of place that I, I hadn't known before. And it ended up being the same space that Lula is now. It was called Logan Beach. Uh, it was a you know quintessential 90s coffee shop with uh, 
you know, art and music during the day and uh, some eclectic food choices. And I just sort of started hanging out there and eventually met uh, my future wife, uh, Leah. She was working there as a cook and we took it over. Um, so I had no intention on being in this um, and, you know, no plan, no business plan, no uh, acumen or experience or definitely no education, uh, culinary arts and never mind business. And so I just kind of went in it through the back door. Um, and we were open for, I mean, the Chicago Rev- Tribune didn't review us until we were like 15. Um, so we just went under the radar the whole time. And um, now we're entering our 22nd year. Um, and I learned to cook by you know being a chef. I just basically got every book I could and studied and tried. And you know, one of the the continuing spirits that I try to keep alive in both myself and in the mission of the restaurant is, you know, being 27 and just like, just trying it, you know what I mean? Just going for it and throwing something up and seeing if it worked and doing the work because of the love of the discovery and, uh, and for little else. And I I think like, if I keep reminding myself to be that person, uh, I think I'll end up living you know, as good of a life as I can. So that's like a short version of what happened uh, with Lula in the nineties. That's, that's quite a leap. (laughs) Yeah, it was crazy. Uh, But you know, it's, it seems to have worked out pretty well. Um, What do you, do you remember like what was going through your mind when you like decided that this was going to be the move that you were making and like, what, what was it like starting out? I mean, we wanted to save the space. You know, the space was like where I met all my friends in my 20s, including, you know, the woman I married. Um, It was, you know, where, I mean, I was in Chicago. I didn't know anyone. I went there every day and I wrote and I read and I talked to friends. And it was where I learned about Chicago music and where I learned where there was a loft on Milwaukee where you could see movies on Sunday nights for free. And there was usually something like pretty esoteric and super arty, but every once in a while it was like, the I don't know, Star Wars or Eyes Wide Shut I saw there, you know, like kind of pirated copies of like first run movies. It was, a, it was, a, it was nineties and we're in like Logan Square and Booker Park and Bucktown. It was a very different place then. And uh, I met uh, so many people who were, you know, making the world in a, a creative, in a, their creative vision. And I wanted that space. I wanted the place and the friendship. Um, and the food was a vehicle to get there and to express that. So it was more about the community and the, and the culture uh, of the space than it was about food at the time. And when I started, I really, you know, I didn't know much. I mean, I want to look back on my life. Like I, from an Italian family. Uh, the last name, name might not show that, but my, my family is Italian. Uh, food is pretty, and eating dinner together is pretty central to my upbringing. And I actually lived in Italy for a little bit during college um, and, uh, and had some food experiences that were, you know, in retrospect, pretty important to me. But food became something that I had to learn to connect people uh, in the space. So I did it. I mean, I, I literally like, you should see my books from that time like you know whether it's like something like um the zuni cafe book was really important to me the french laundry book was really important to me all the alice waters books were important and i was like literally okay bought a leg of lamb like i got to figure out how to cut it and i would go to like <laughs> zuni i would go to the jacques pepin book and i'd study it and i'd be like hey, here you go i mean thankfully at the time we weren't very busy so i could make <laughs> a lot of mistakes 
Um, but man, I, I mean, that's when the farmer's market opened and I had uh, a friend who was a, a chef who really turned me on to a lot of things. Um, and she, um, she told me about the farmer's market and took me there. And that's when I met, you know, Greg Gunthorpe and Mick Klug and all the people who were starting out at the time. And I got interested in connecting the source of what, what I was buying with people and their stories, which makes sense from like a really narrative driven person. So like, I just got really invested in the farm to table idea more from a, I don't know, like a contextual or a narrative space than from, you know, anything else. And like, I just got obsessed with it. And I've, you know, gone to the market every, uh, every week since then, you know. It's pretty, it, that market's pretty great. And all of those, all of those people are amazing. Uh, yeah. And it's, it's uh, interesting. I mean, cause I, I've been in Chicago for like seven years and like, you know, Mick Klug was, was not small when I got here and is, you know, even bigger now. So it's kind of interesting to think about <laughs> that aspect of them just starting out back then. For sure. I mean, those, you know, um, I mean, we can get into this, but you know, those people are, under a lot of duress and their, their livelihoods are threatened. Maybe not Klugs are pretty, pretty big at this point, but like Gunthorpe farms just shut down their chicken production <clears throat> to focus on pork, but really, but because chicken has become an untenable practice in the, in America for a small farmer, which is like a story that has gotten uh, like almost no attention. And it's really sad, you know, like, um, so, um, some of the critical farms that I've developed strong relationships with have closed. Like Green Acres is not coming back next year, um, and Leaning Shed, which is another really critical one, is is gone. Um, and those aren't necessarily COVID casualties, but like I got to be honest, like there's definitely it's not coincidence that they're not here now. Um, but it's part of the strain of the um, the whole um, you know the food system in America that after 20 years of this like movement, like we're not really anywhere beyond where we were when I started, you know. I mean, kind of, kind of leading into that is is my next question, which uh, you know, Lula has has really been like a cornerstone of the Chicago hospitality community for for a long time. Uh, and so, why why is community so important in this industry, and how do we support it more? I mean, community. Yeah, I mean, I, I am someone who like I think it has about it's about personal story a lot of a lot of restaurant life and i'm someone who i mean i had no friends or family in chicago and now i have friends and family uh and a community and that i believe in and respect that is very large and i'm extremely grateful and i feel like um my gratitude for what chicago has given me and what that community given to is something that i just constantly replenish and try to feed back out of respect for what i've been given um, so personally, like I love the people that I'm with and the people I work with and the people that I've met through the work, both whether we just talked about some farmers, you know, but also, I mean, through this work, I've met all sorts of like really crazy people that I, you know, I mean, I don't think I would have met otherwise, you know, and have had experiences that it just never would have happened. Um, so I'm grateful for the community, like personally, um, in terms of like community and hospitality, I think. Um, I think we're at a turning point and we're in a pivotal moment of reckoning. And I think it's because, I mean, let's be honest, like this is an economic relationship we're talking about. 
and there are, have been winners and losers in this relationship. And, um, I, you know, and it's absolutely not an equitable one. So I'm looking really hard now at like my past with this and saying like, you know, I, I've got an opportunity to build something, um, uh, different now. And I'm looking back and saying like, how could I, I mean, what have I learned in this? And what is my opportunity for actually putting into practice things that I've learned? Because it's one thing to learn something and it's another thing to behave like you've learned something. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really think that, um, I mean, now's the time, um, but there are difficulties in every, I mean, any relationship we have, I mean, you know, whether it's, you know, marriage or friendship or family or business, I mean, there are definitely like complexities to this that I think are going to take some years to answer. Um, But like, let's be real, like restaurants are not, I mean, they're not like just cultural entities. I mean, they have cultural import, but they are expressions of economies. Like they're they're least, I mean, they're land holding deals. They are, you know, they are employment, um, contractual employment, relate, you know, relationships. There, there's a lot of money attached to these relationships. And I think it's important to look at those and, and make them more, the, those relationships more transparent so that we can make better decisions moving forward. So right now, I feel like I'm in the process of trying to save. Uh, the chance to build community. And I am hoping that the community that I did build is still, you know, as some part of it is still there to, you know, to be, to be available to rebuild. Um, But I don't have any kind of, uh, I don't, I'm not counting on it. You know what I mean? Like, I think that's part of, I mean, I know I'm rambling on right now, but like, that's part of the loss of COVID is like, I mean, it's a loss. Like we, like all of us, and I mean, at least at Lula, I mean, like we're very close, and we had a life in a certain way together. Um, and I'm talking about my, you know, like the, my team or my employees, but also all the people that we were connected to, whether it's the farmers or the, the customers, you know, and friends, and like all that's gone. And it's a, it, you know, we can do it again in a different way. But like, it's never going to be the same. And like the idea that it will be, um, I mean, this is just my like very opinionated opinion, but is kind of dangerous um, because it can, um, it can cover up any kind of, I mean, any of the toxic parts of the old relationships, but it also, um, it also doesn't acknowledge the, the, the serious like uh, trauma of whatever, but some, you know, people have been through this year. I know that's a downer, but like, I mean, I'm positive about the future, but like, I'm not pretending that this, yeah. what we went through is, and what we have to go through is like, really like all that sunny. Um, it's a good opportunity and I'm, I'm really, I mean, I'm ready for it, but um, this is serious shit. You know what I mean? It's not, it's, it needs to be um, thought of very carefully, I think. Yeah, I mean, this year has been tumultuous to say the least for everyone in this industry. Yeah, like ups and downs, and you know, people losing jobs, people losing restaurants, people being on unemployment for months and months at a time. Like, mm-hmm. I, you know, still know people that are that have now been out of work for over a year, and they, you know, these are absolutely these are these are people that are like working this industry that are like some of the hardest working people that I know because everyone in this industry is some of the hardest working people that I know is everyone just puts so much into it. 
Um, and how about all those and, those people who were like, I don't know if I want to go back. Like, I love the work and yeah. I love the community, but I don't know if I can go back after like 15 years or 10 years or whatever of doing it. It's like, it's a pretty traumatic yeah. situation people are in. Well, I mean, I think it's like, it's part, like everyone's had this, this downtime and time to rest and they're like, oh yeah, th- this is unsustainable living for me to like go into this like this. And also like, I think this past year has really put a spotlight on so many practices that exist in our industry that are like untenable and, and, you know, just downright bad for so many people. And it's like, well, how do we, for sure. How do we keep in good consciousness, like perpetuating these things, these practices? Yeah. And how Uh, do we recover from where we're at right now? Like even, like even just something that I think about a lot is, um, I mean, we talk about emotional labor in the industry a lot. And there's a really, I mean, I've been recommending this a lot to people, but I really love the On Being podcasts um, and um, her work. And there's a recent episode where they talk a lot about the the physiological like um, impact that this tr- COVID trauma has had on our bodies mm-hmm. and um, what impact that has had. And I know like personally, like, you know, I've been, I feel like I've been through a lot of stress and and hard work in my life, but like this, this loss and rebuilding and the, and the uncertainty around COVID has really done a, done a lot of damage physically. And I know that it has about for everyone who has lost a job or may have been stuck at home. And it's not just about like exercise or like healthy eating. It's, it's about like this, we've just been through this, like really you know, traumatic experience and the, what what the stress of that does to, to bodies. And now, if we're thinking about that in terms of coming back to restaurants and the stress, <laughs> the stress that workers are under in that situation, and like what you know, it's a physical job, and then yet you're and you already have emotional labor just dealing with the public and their wants and their needs and trying to understand where you fit in. And now we're putting like a um, like lingering pandemic danger of that. Um, into the mix. I mean, that's really, really, really rough. I mean, that's part of the reason why we haven't reopened. I mean, among yeah. many, but like, that's hard to deal with. And like, um, it's certainly not going to be, you know, it's not compensated for that. I mean, whatever, we can go into that in a yeah. minute, but like, <laughs> that's crazy shit like that they have to deal with. And like, um, it's, it, it needs to be thought through. It, it is. I mean, I was, I was talking to Magro about this in July uh, when I first got asked to come back to the job that I was at pre-pandemic. And I I don't, like, nobody told me that I was going to feel so much stress and anxiety from just getting a phone call asking me to come back to work. And the thoughts right. and, like, the feelings that went into that, I was just like, okay, well, like, I felt like I'd get that phone call and be like, all right, cool, let's go back to work. And, like, I got it and I was like, oh, fuck. Like, I, like, I don't know if I'm ready for if this. If you're ready, right? Can, yeah. yeah. It's... I mean, it's been it's been a year. <laughs> yeah. The hospitality industry, it's not like we've really ever been treated very nicely. But then it's like you deal with the dehumanization and then also just not really been treated like a person. And then you have the pandemic that starts to happen. And now you're now considered essential but not treated as if you are essential so you don't have the care or the safety or the things that you need 
to be able to feel safe at worst. So it's like, and then you have like owners now who just are trying to continue the same abusive patterns and relationships that they did before pre-pandemic. So like as a worker, you've had an entire year to focus on like how things should change and could change. But then you get that phone call and you're like, I don't even know if I'm ready. Like, I don't yeah. even know if I need to go back, even if you did change everything, because is it? And then you're left with weighing your livelihood over your personal well-being. And that's, I think, what's been the toughest, like, as a worker throughout all of this. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm with you 100%. I mean, I, I think about um, the question about livelihood versus life. This is like a question that none of us should have to like really uh, have to answer. Like I, I, I mean, I'm of a like the hundred percent you know opinion that we close everything down and provide the support both for workers and for uh, owners to get through this in a healthy way together, and then reopen when it when it's safe to do so. But the you know the way that this pandemic was handled, I mean, there were definitely um, a lot of um, people who were thrust into decisions that were impossible, you know, um, really, really impossible. And I'm not saying that all decisions made were, you know, uh, are impossible, but I, you know, I were, I was privy to many that were just like, I don't know what to tell you, you know what I mean? You're choosing between losing, you know, you, putting people back to work when you don't feel like you're ready or, losing your restaurant um, from the owner side um, or from a worker side, you're feeling like you might lose a job that you've invested, you know, 10 years into, or that you really care about. Um, and, um, and, and in your own personal safety. And then like, you know, I personally have like an issue that, I mean, it continues, but like I live with my wife's father who's 91 and is going through chemotherapy in my house and I have two kids. So like, where's like, everybody has those kind of situations at home. You know what I mean? Like, how do you navigate those like really important, like personal uh, complexities in a, uh, in what's effectively like in a, a marketplace, you know what I mean? Of labor. And that's why the government needs to like, I mean, at certain things the government needs to do like health insurance, you know what I mean? Like we shouldn't have to make these decisions about like how much insurance we give people and like whether or not you go with these people or that people that they give more, you know, like, uh, I, I feel like there should be some basic, um, there's some basic human needs that that need to be met, um, and they need to be met by the the government. <laughs> in my opinion, yeah. and they're not they're not they're not making that happen, and uh, and it just shows you that you know we don't live in the kind of culture that believes in taking care of anybody but you know themselves. You know, just well, I think that. I think the past years really, you know, put a spotlight on that as well as like, especially with like, you know, dining restrictions being loosened, but then we see like a, a resurgence in cases and then they're like, oh, well, we're actually going to slow down everything else, but you can keep going to restaurants and you can keep going to bars and uh, we're going to get vaccines to hospitality workers, but like in a couple months and yeah. we'll just go from there. Uh, I mean, never mind the undocumented uh, workers oh, issue, geez, right? Yeah. So, like, mm -hmm. I mean, like, I I know people across the country who kept restaurants open because there are workers on their staff who couldn't get UI benefits, right? 
I mean, like what, what are, yeah, what are they supposed to do? I mean, like they got no, no way to pay for rent and food. And that was, this has been real shitty. Um, and it's, it has like really has shown a spotlight on how poorly we are taking care of each other and the government level yeah. <laughs> on the street level. Well, we're doing a great job. I mean, as best we can, right. With yeah, all the mean, programs that are happening, but the, I think I mean, it's I'm talking about the- government level. I think that's one of the strong points of Chicago is that, you know, as, as a community in this industry, like we do our best to take care of each other, which is, you know, that we've seen a lot of that in the past year, which has been really, really amazing. Uh, and we've been lucky to talk with a bunch of people and through this medium to, you know, talk about that more. And it's been, it's been amazing. But over the past year, like we've all seen you be like very outspoken about, you know, fighting to save independent restaurants and, you know, calling out the government about, you know, doing what is needed for our survival. Uh, what, I mean, what was starting that process? Like, I mean, you, you guys, I remember it was like a little over a year ago when you, you met with a bunch of uh, restaurant owners and was a chef special and started yeah. talking about uh, too small to fail. Yeah, no, we did. And, um, so I've been, I mean, I've been part of several groups that, uh, have worked on different, different things, but I, I have been fortunate to be part of the IRC. Um, and I mean, this last COVID package had the $28.6 billion in it for, uh, federal restaurant relief. And I mean, that's, it's a little late everybody, but, um, it's not, it's, I'm very thankful for it. I mean, I think that, um, that you will see a lot of um, places that would have closed be able to stay open because of this bill. Um, I'm I'm proud that I was a part of that. I saw government in action in a way that I you know I never expected to be that close to this kind of stuff. And I mean, it really depends on interpersonal relationships and connections in a way that can you know. Um, uh, it's really, it's remarkable how much it matters, like who you've, you, you know, not only just who you know, but like um, the case that you can make to really important people about your need. Um, I think we did a, um, I think the bill is structured in the right way. And I think it can go to um, the smallest people first. Um, and I think that's a great thing. So now I am concerned Um like for here's an example, a quick story. Like I, I'm friends with the the banker um, that I use, uh, who is it used to be Banco Popular, which is uh, a small uh, bank from Puerto Rico, um, and they were bought out by First Midwest. But the, all the tellers and the bank managers and stuff are still there, and so I talk to them all the time. And the other day, I spoke with a, a bank manager there, and I was like, "Isn't this great?" Like. You know, did you read the news about this restaurants act? And like, I mean, a uh, she wasn't uh, aware of it, but she was really surprised to hear that it had gone through, and wanted as much information as possible because she's a banker who talks to small, small businesses, like much, much smaller than mine, um, in neighborhoods uh, in Humboldt Park, Logan Square, like West Logan Square, West Logan, uh, you know, Humboldt Park. Um, who have no recourse and don't think that they have any way out of this financially and are asking her, like, what can they, what can they do? Can they get a loan? Can they do this? And they're, they're not, 
um, uh, they just don't have the kind of resources. And so I, I think that the IRC is going to, you know, um, work really hard at getting the word out that these funds are going to be available soon. The first 21 days are for um, women and minority-owned businesses and very, very small businesses uh, to access these funds and that people need to get on it and apply immediately. Um, you know, and uh, the smallest businesses should be in line for that first. Uh, and I think that this has a, the power to really get people through the next the next year. It's like a year over year situation where you get you have like less uh, restrictions on your uh, on the funds and than the PPP. The PPP was really not designed for restaurants, and it really uh, really we really struck people really struggled to use it effectively. Um, and now this this restaurant revitalization fund is something that can help, but if people only if people know about it, um, and that's really important for the small um, indie restaurant. And I'm not, I'm talking about the ones that aren't like James Beard nominees, you know what I mean? The ones that are just uh, in neighborhoods um, making their family businesses work. They need access and information about these funds. But man, I was yeah really excited about that, um, you know. But it's been a year plus and. Restaurants have closed. Friends of mine's restaurants have closed. You know, from um, I mean, I, you know, you, we all know some of them. They're they're really hurtful. Um, some of these closings. I mean, whether it's Blackbird or Cafe Marijan or um, you know, or a million other ones that I could you know think to name. Um, and you know, maybe they all didn't close from COVID, but many many of them did. And um, I mean, it's a, a loss, right? Um, and then we also want people to be able to get in. We want all like there's so much creative work that's happening right now. We want those people who are doing their their um, their work um, in different methods to be able to open up restaurants and to want to and to know that they have support in the future. So I'm also hoping that this makes people feel optimistic about our industry. Yeah. Um, so I mean, what do what do we like as like the the royal we uh, need to do to keep independent restaurants safe and secure in the future of the American hospitality scene. And that's like, you know, we were talking about farms, like we're talking about restaurants as, as not just like a place for people to go and enjoy themselves for dinner, but like as a vital piece of, you know, every city's economy and, and what it, what it brings for everyone. Well, I think, I think there needs to be some fundamental changes to, um, to our food system and, are the the sort of like over the macroeconomics of of food in the United States, and I'm not especially hopeful that that's going to happen. Um, but you know, we have a lot of plentiful, cheap food in this country, and um, uh, the cost of like actual um, of you know the cost of restaurants has grown. Um, so much so people are really struggling to to turn a profit um and it's causing them to um i don't know to to fail um so i think that uh i have a lot of answers to this question i think that there are some things that need to happen like the i'm a believer in changing the sub-minimum wage um and getting rid of it um I think that there needs to be tax policies to support the change from a tip sub minimum wage to a one fair wage system that works 
equally for all restaurants in the country um, so that there isn't a tax incentive to pay the subminimum wage. Um, I think that could help a lot. Um, I think that there are a lot of food policies um, in the agricultural landscape that could change to make um, small farms like Dunthorpe be able to compete um, and um, successfully um, so that like, you know, cheap chicken from Costco isn't, you know, sort of winning the war on, you know, food. Um, and that would certainly help. Um, and ultimately, I think um, I think people are going to have to, I mean, I'm really hesitant to say pay more for food because I know that we also have the challenge of making food accessible and um, affordable. Uh, but this is not something that's like, just determined in a single restaurant, you know, the price of food and the and the the access points. This is like a sort of like a national framework. So there's a lot that's you know going into like what the cost of uh, a plate of food is. But we certainly need to be able to bring in more um, uh, we, the revenue needs to pay higher wages um, to create more sustainability in the industry. Um, and for, in order for that to happen, you know, either the price of food's got to go up or there needs to be some tax incentives to pay people better, or, um, the cost of food needs to be, uh, sort of like checked across the board from, you know, Costco to four star, uh, levels. So like, I don't know if people are just going to go out to eat, you know, fewer times in a week or, or what, but I think you're definitely going to see some changes in the, um, people's notion of the value of, of food and how much it costs to go out to eat. Cause I think that need, that's probably going to go up and it, it should. And, um, you know, the other thing that I think would be really great for the industry to be successful is, um, for there to be, uh, federal, um, rules about paid time off, uh, and, uh, health insurance. Um, and that would create a, a great playing field for us to, um, to move in the right direction. Those are just some of the things like tax relief, you know, tax changes, you know, uh, health insurance and like paid time off, I think would be a good starting place. Yeah. I mean, I, I would love that. Um, and I, I love that you address like the fact that the, the cost of food is most likely going to go up and also should go up because I think that a lot of people don't, understand like the the labor and time and and love and everything that goes into like producing this food you know you go to a restaurant like there's so much that goes into every plate and every aspect and every touch of the whole thing and they're like well i don't want to pay 20 dollars for this plate of chicken because it's just chicken because they go to costco and they get the yeah. 28 pack of chicken thighs for 13 cents and they you know and they're just like well this is obscene like why should i right. pay this much for it and uh, and that's just, you know, the, it's, they look at the, the restaurant as just like this building that produces a plate for them to sit down and enjoy. And, you know, restaurants are obviously so much more than that. It's, you know, all the people who, who make it and all the people who are like putting their, their time and efforts into making this more than just a building that puts a plate in front of you. Like it's got heart and soul and feelings and it's full of, it's full of emotions that these people are like also feeding off of. Right, right. I mean, they're they're there to be a part of that um, that energy, right? I mean, like you could certainly eat a plate of roast chicken and at home, um, and we all have over the last year, right? Um, and I think it's something it's ineffable. It's like you can't 
you can't grab onto it. That's why so many people fail at this. Yeah. Um, because I think it's about personal story. It's about what happened in the space and like mm-hmm. what, you know, who, and there's something like just built into the story of, um, of the people behind it and the, the space itself. And I'm not just talking about the walls and the color and the design. I'm talking about like how they got there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what, and even if nobody knows, like, that I met my wife at that restaurant or that I met my friends at that restaurant or that, uh, you know, in that space, or that was literally the first place I went in Chicago. And um, that is what makes, that's what makes it a special room. And um, I might even be able to move it some, I mean, I don't, I'm not planning on it, but like, it's about the, the the history that it's carried in the project um and i think that you see that in restaurants all you know all across like the ones that i love are ones that have like these sort of like stories to them that you only find out later you know yeah i mean and think about like going out to eat dinner at a place where the staff is like happy and obviously works very well with each other and it, it is right. like, more than just like a co-worker situation like this is like a family of people who who spend a lot of time together like you can see it when they're like talking and laughing with each other and it just like it blends into that environmental sound of the restaurant happening but like i don't know just your your whole experience is elevated to something like so much more than just going out to you're not just like sitting there and eating in in a quiet room like there's there's life to it right the restaurant is its, its own entity as well yeah I mean, as I've gotten older, I've been thinking about like how I tell, like, you know, how I tell the story of the space to new people who come in, um, because that's also important. And that's just like where I'm at in my moment in leadership is like, I, you know, I need to tell the story of like how we got there, but also of what the values are and how, you know, how I intend to build on those and make, um, and make things, um, to continue to make things um, align with my values. So like, that's something that I have, that we all have to be intentional about. And I think, um, it's easy for restaurants to have that vibe and that energy in the beginning and much harder for it to sustain. So I think about that kind of the vibe that you just, just talked about, like, what is that about? And like, how do I, how do I keep it? You know? And, um, uh, you know, that's a struggle we all face, but I, I definitely think like that's, uh, an important part of, um, of restaurant life. And it's one of the things that's lost. That's the thing that's lost in the pandemic. When people are talking about like the cultural fab or, you know, fabric of a neighborhood. I mean, that's what they're talking about. There's a, those interpersonal connections and, the and the people and the, 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 the energy you get from those spaces. I mean, they're not talking about roast chicken. They're talking about <laughs> they're talking about the depth of feeling, you know. Yeah, which is which is interesting for the people who are like adamant that restaurants need to be reopening, or like the you know the people who call the small restaurants and they're like, well, why aren't you open? Like they said that you can see fifty percent in there. It's like, oh, my staff is terrified, and I'm terrified, and fifty percent right. of this room is twelve people. So like, why am I gonna? Why am I going to open this door? And these people are upset about this. And it's like, um, yeah, they sure. They want to make sure that you know what's going on and that you can do it. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I got it. Oh, thank you so much for telling me. I had no idea that I could reopen my restaurant. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. But like, I've been, I hope I've been pretty careful not to like throw, I mean, like, 
I am with you. And, you know, you know, we haven't opened a day and we're not, mm-hmm. I mean, are, are we in a fourth wave or not guys? I don't, I mean, I don't know. I mean, like I'm a little concerned that we are. Um, sure. but, uh, I, I think the, it's been important to me to say a lot that, you know, re- each restaurant has its specific needs. And, um, I, I think that there have been some that have behaved irresponsibly and some that, um, that have made decisions that I might not have made for my own personal life, but for whatever reasons they had to. And like, I bring up the point about, um, undocumented employees a lot, because I think it's something that's pretty easy, um, for people to, um, out there in the right, you know, like who don't normally work in restaurants, not to think about that, which is, you know, really unfortunate. Um, so also bring that up in case, you know, people are, um, asking why somebody, you know, might want to open a, a partial capacity or they don't have any, I mean, this whole thing, restaurants are built on so much debt. And that's one of the things that, um, you know, it's really, man, that, that's really, that's like one of the biggest problems in the industry is like, you know, obviously how much it costs to open up a restaurant. And one of the things, one of the things that has been so, um, well, you know, our story has been that we didn't, you know, we didn't really have a lot of debt. We kind of just built up from nothing ourselves. And the stress that that debt has put on um, the relationships between landlords and owners, owners and staff, owners and people who loan them money, and you know, investors and banks and other you know, and other things like that. And without having like a clear federal guideline stepping in and saying like, okay, you have rent abatement or you have you know, clear uh, loan abatement for these commercial loans or whatever, or uh, some kind of program to pay these people. Um, there've been a lot of, um, uh, stressors that have caused breakage between relationships, you know, and, uh, that could have been, um, that could have been made better by, you know, some aid early on to, to prevent those kind of things from happening. So I've always been trying to, been trying to be careful to, to say that because of the lack of federal support, like in people, some people have had to open, like I had no choice. Isn't that terrible? I mean, like you're putting people in harm's, I mean, in my opinion, you're putting people in harm's way because you know, we don't support undocumented workers in the United States or the UI benefits aren't, you know, accessible to everybody or uh, the, a bank is going to take away somebody's like restaurant that they've spent their entire life working toward. And then they're going to, you know, not only are they going to be you know, financially ruined, but also there's a bunch of jobs that'll be lost. Like there, there's so many different places where, you know, the lack of um, clear and decisive federal um, support uh, really left people in a lurch. Uh, well, now that we've talked about all of that, uh, <laughs> what does mental health and hospitality look like to you? <laughs> well, um, I mean, we talk about it a lot. Um, I talk about mental health a lot. Um, with my, the people that are working at Lula, uh, doing the takeout program now, um, we do, we do have like a weekly, like culture meeting or, a, you know, sort of like core meeting of talk about like where we're at as a company, um, to make sure that we're aligning our practices with our values. I think that's a, uh, that alignment is really key in terms of people being, I mean, it's not just about being happy at work because you're certainly not going to always be happy, but you need to at least believe that what you're doing is the right, <laughs> the right thing to do 
And if that, if you're not that you, you know, either there's a system that's wrong or you're doing something wrong as a business or that person doesn't necessarily want to be there anymore, which is totally fine. So we have a lot of check-ins uh, with people. Uh, but then we're talking a lot about like, I mean, this is the thing that's really hard. Um, the work is hard. And currently we can't charge enough to really put enough people doing the work. Cause that's really the only, the only variable that really matters here. Like how many people are doing the job, you know, like, because, you know, think about a dish station. It's a hell of a lot easier if there's four people on a dish station rather than one. Um, and, but you can't afford to have four. So you're going to have what two and like, how do you manage that to make sure that like that work can get done and not be too overly taxing, but be the right amount of work for the labor. Um, and that variable is something that obviously is completely determined by the, the economics of the restaurant. And I think that restaurants like mine that are in the sort of like casual fine dining, you know, that gray area, um, have a big challenge because we are trying to do things in a way, um, that, uh, requires a lot of labor, uh, but we're not necessarily getting the money to, to, to pay for it all. So we have to make some tough choices. Um, we have to make choices about, um, you know, about the food we make and the service we give. And we have to make choices that are, um, not only about the art of our experience and the, but about the sustainability of the labor force of the people working, meaning their health. And it's mm -hmm. in both mental and physical. I mean, it's, um, it has to be a fair and just balance between like how many people are doing the work, how long the work is and how hard it is. Um, and what people are being paid for. It's not just about, pay I mean, people need to be paid fairly for sure, but you, you can't pay a, one dishwasher in a restaurant that needs four dishwashers, you know, four times to pay and expect them to live like a healthy life because the job is still going to crush that person and physically mm. and the stress of it. So, um, so I think with like really thinking about, um, the, the people, um, and how they're going through their day and whether or not the work is the right amount of, um, sort of the right weight is important and how that, goes through the course of the day. Um, and then thinking about um, efficiencies and processes in order to, to maximize efficiency and not just for production in terms of making more money, but also to make the job manageable itself. Um, and then, um, I mean, that's kind of like some of the stuff I'm thinking about as an operator in order to create sustainability. Um, because it's not just about like, Mental health isn't about providing resources after you've fucked up. What I mean by that is like, you can't be all crazy and toxic and be like, hey, let's sit down and like, let's do some, we'll, we'll have like a yoga class on, you know, on the day off that we have. And like, that'll solve all the problems because you know, it's not, and you don't get healthy being that way either. You can't like go into gym and lift weights for six hours one day and then like live like a disaster the rest of the week. Um, so it's about your like day-to-day -day behavior. So like, okay. So thinking about that, one of the problems you come up with is you, the, in this work is that it still is a race against time and that is not going to go away. 
So, you know, is a sense of urgency a toxic patriarchal um, concept or not? I mean, I, I raise that question like a lot in the work because, I mean, we're in the business of buying raw meat and vegetables, buying them, creating something and giving it to someone at a certain time. So there is there is a temporal like urgent element to that work, right? I mean, you, you can't get away from that. Like the stuff's going to spoil, the people are going to leave, the food's not going to get hot. I mean, there's time is the part of this. So like um, we were talking the other day, it's like, well, so what is a feminist sense of urgency? Like, what does that look like? Um, you know what I mean? Um, and I have a chef de cuisine at Lula who likes to use the phrase chip, chip, like a lot, like to their, to, you know, to the line cooks that, uh, she works with. And like, that is our like kind of shorthand for a respectful, but, uh, demanding, um, like, Hey, come on, we we're in this and we have to make this uh, at a certain amount of time. So um, we're thinking about ways of like not being, um, you know, we're, we can't yell. We're not going to yell at people or, you know, uh, things uh, when they're uh, not going fast enough, but they also need to go fast. You know what I mean? Like that's part of the work. And I'm very, I'm pretty quick. I do things quickly. I've learned how to do it because you know, I'm efficient. And I'm also almost 50. Like, so someone who is a line cook who's 23 has like a body that a 23 year old uh, is, you know, going to be able to probably move a little quicker than me if they have the skill set. So it's the skill set. It's about how, you know, what did I, how did I learn how to move? How did I think about like the physicality and the flow of the space and stuff to get to move quickly? Um, so we talk to people about like, okay, if you're picking parsley and you have like a big box of parsley, like, you're not going to like reach in and grab a piece of parsley and then pull it out and then pick. And then when you have the stem, the container of the stem is not going to be over there. You have to like set up a station so you can do something in an efficient manner. Um, and like doing that with all things, whether you're, you know, bringing stuff up and downstairs and like, you know, full hands, hands in and out, et cetera. All those little things add up into efficiency. And if we manage to talk about that, and teach that as a group and talk about speed and efficiency in a way that says to them, we are asking for this because we are creating a team of people who are better compensated and um, more, you know, like where sustainability is a, is a primary value. Um, and you have, and this is how you get there. Because you can't get there just by taking however long you want, because that we will go bankrupt and we won't be able to pay people well. So like we have to actually like put that on the table. Like you're working here, the starting wage is higher than you know other restaurants, at least that's how we see it. We offer this and we are not gonna yell at you and swear at you, but we are gonna demand that you go fast and we're gonna teach you how to do it. Um, that's how we think of we're trying to develop our like you know, sort of like feminist sense of urgency. I mean, I know that that's not like a completely, um, you know, uh, uh, sufficient term, but like, we don't know what else to say because urgency is part of our life, you know, and it's a demanding job. 
Did that answer the question or is that a ramble <laughs> load of nonsense? Uh, I could go on and on about this stuff. No, no, it's great. Uh, the parsley example is uh, fucking hilarious. <laughs> I mean, because I, that's like, you know, it's like your baseline thing and I see it every day. And I think it's like, you know, we, we work in this industry and we're like, all right, cool. So I need you to pick parsley and you expect it to be done fast, but you have this new person in there who, you know, like for a long time, this industry was about screaming and yelling and, you know, your, your egotistical, typically white male chef, you know, coming down on you for not going fast enough. And people are afraid to like, you know, to move a trash can next to them to, to, to get rid of their trash when they're doing this because they don't know if it's okay or not. So they're like, well, okay, I know that the baseline of this job is picking parsley. So they just like set it up in the station and do it. It's like, you like if you're if the person's not giving you the tools to do this in a more efficient way then they're not providing you with what you need and i mean that's it's also about teaching the managers to do that because like managers in restaurants get no training like you're one day you're a line cook the next day you're a sous chef you know what i mean like you got no management training no leadership training you don't know what the hell you're doing and now you're supposed to teach people about you know uh a different concept of a sense of urgency. And, you know, you came up in a, I don't know, in a Michelin starred restaurant where you got yelled at for years. You know what I mean? So that is something that we think about. We have to train managers and we have to make the managers a job that people want to do. Yeah. Like that's, you know, so like this year in the pandemic, we're like, okay, before, this is one thing that we did not do a good job of before the pandemic, which is managers were working like constantly. And they loved, they liked their work and they were just like there all the time trying new things and like staying late, which is, you know, you know, I'm sure people got burnt out, but like they they also kind of loved, liked it. You know what I mean? But at the same time, um, I don't think that it's, this is not the right way to live. Right. So if we take manager and say, okay, you're not, you're going to work like a maximum number of hours. And now all of a sudden we have like 60 hours of labor a week that we have no idea where, who's going to do that work. So we have to like become really efficient. But like having the managers actually have a job that other people want is like almost, I mean, especially in the front of the house, right? Like kind of unheard of. Like mm-hmm. a lot of people would rather be bartenders and bar managers or the top server in a restaurant than the GM because they know they're going to get paid less, have to work more, and they're going to get all the crap thrown at them. So like managers... It needs to be a job where you get a lot of training, educational opportunities, and like you're not working like, I mean, you can still work a lot, but you can't, you're not going to get destroyed um, and then paid less than everybody else. So that has to also change, you know? Yeah. And it's like, you're, you're exactly right. Like people will be like, I'll just stay in my position now, even like hourly line cooks. It's like, I make more per hour being a line cook than taking on all this responsibility for, uh, for 36,000 a year, which breaks down to like $1 an hour when they work right, 100 right, hours right. a week. Totally. Uh, I just had this conversation yesterday with someone because they were like trying to decide whether or not they should leave their management position because they knew that they were going to make more money by leaving their management position and just bartending elsewhere. And then we got in a kind of conversation of like, why does one make the leap from being a bartender to a manager? And it's mostly because somebody has told you that this is a resume builder of some sort 
And in order to get to X, you have to do this first and then you can go there. But then you just like, you made a great uh, point, Jason. It's like no one trains you. So sometimes like those toxic environments that you're used to, you end up perpetuating that culture just because that's the only example that you know. So it's like, well, I had to do it. So now you have to do it. Um, Instead of giving people like the tools that they need to succeed in this position of management, because also when you get into management, you very rarely then get feedback from anyone. And if you do get feedback, it's usually negative. So I think that that's a great way of looking at how we come back into this industry and really look at managers and make their job healthier, more sustainable and uh, aspirational. Because I know that I've been a manager um, now more than I've been a worker in this industry. And so many people are like, I don't envy your job. I don't want your job. Like nobody wants my job, but somebody's got to do it. The other thing is, talking about all of these like toxic traits, like sense of urgency and even just like work ethic, which aren't actually toxic, but when there's no teamwork or leadership involved, like, or if there's other compounding factors, like you have a sense of urgency, but you also have to work like 70 hours a week. Like it's, it's just leading to failure. And I think that having things that match that, like, teamwork and mentorship are really important. But then when you get to a leadership position, like is the teamwork cycled back to you or do you just have to like lead that and then you feel isolated because you're like, I need to maintain everybody else feeling supported. And I'm like Nagra said, like, I don't have a lot of support. I don't have a lot of feedback that's positive. So like, how do I sustain when I feel like I'm working a lot, working hard and financially not compensated well, you know? Right. And so dealing with that, the crushing stress of the crushing stress of the everyday. Cause I mean, in most cases, owners aren't around to take the heat of that stuff. And it's usually the managers who end up soaking up whatever's left at the end of the day in terms of the stress. Right. Yeah. Well, especially with like ownership that's not as present in in the space. It's like, okay, cool. I need you to manage this. And it's like, you're saying this like these people aren't people. Like they're part of the machines, part of the part of the restaurant, part of the building. But it's like, you know, they're all individuals. And it's like, you're not, you need to know how to like work with people and like not just manage a thing. Like everybody is individual. Everybody has their own wants and needs. Everybody has their own things that make them feel good and feel better about the work that they're doing and what they're doing and what they need for their life. And that's how you end up with like people not showing up to work because they're burnt out or they're stressed out or they're tired or scared or whatever. And it's like, it's not sustainable for, for long-term. I mean, the tricky part is let's go. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, You've mentioned several times through this podcast, your core values and things that um, mean a lot to not only you, but the core values of, of Lula. Do you mind sharing with us like what those core values are? And I'm sure they're ever-changing, but... Sure. I mean, um, they do they do change a lot. Um, but And there are a lot of them. Um, so, uh, I mean, 
I I mentioned earlier that a value um, for us is um, to capture that sort of that spirit of you know when you're younger and just you're doing something um, for the sort of like the experience of doing it and the challenge and the education like those are part of our values and we we express those through like um, creativity as a value uh, education um, uh, access. Uh, and I, by access, I mean like giving people a chance to um, contribute to the restaurant creatively. Um, so uh, there's a lot of, I have like a pretty, I feel like I have a pretty strong like creative mentorship relationship with um, sous chefs and chefs that I've worked with over the years. And uh, and that's a, a big part of our value system is get, giving those people the space to um, to try uh, try things and to um, to experiment. Um, and we do that structurally. So like up, I mean, we don't know how it's going to work after post pandemic, but up to the pandemic, we were doing a, uh, a Monday night dinner where like chefs on the team would prepare, uh, dishes, um, every week. And like, that was a, a function, um, sort of like an operational, uh, structure that permitted that kind of access and creativity and education to happen. Um, equity is, um, increasingly a, a value that we're really um reimagining and, and and recommitting to um so this is you know my chance to change the pay structures at lula um so we you know we moved away from a tipping model uh to do a uh, a fixed um wage model that accounts for seniority and skill set and uh, and a, a range of other factors um, we, um, we believe strongly that this is the right way to go, um, right now. Um, but I, a caveat is that we haven't put it into full effect since we're not actually open, but we're current, you know, we're currently using that model now and it's, it's working, um, well, and that has a lot to do with bridging the pay gap between the, you know, the front and the back of the house, um, which has always been, you know, which is our industry's, um, you know, one of our industry's major problems. Um, but I, and there's a whole host of other reasons to get rid of tipping. Um, so, uh, that like the equity, um, uh, as a value has been important to me. Um, uh, education is, um, uh, one, some, a value that I, I mentioned earlier, but it's not just about, um, like food and wine education. I, um, I also want people to have experiences at work that um, um, I don't know, just to teach them about um, about the world. Um, so we really do invite people to share a lot um, and to use the space for other other means. So I, I regularly give the space away to people to use for projects, um, whether it's like filming, like making films in or doing art on the walls or more recently to doing things like, uh, you know, we hosted in living color before the mm -hmm. pandemic and, and doing other things like that. And I want that to be a bigger part of my life moving forward. So if anybody's listening that, you know, has ideas and they need a space, like I'm all about giving it up. It's been a little tricky in the pandemic because, you know, we had a closed system there for a while, but, uh, in terms of letting people in. Um, but I'm all, that's something that I'm really interested in is, uh, a collaboration, um, with people, um, who want to use the space and the resources that I have for, uh, in the space for, uh, their own, their own things. Um, and then, um, education also means like doing 
I mean, increasingly doing manager training. Um, you know, we're doing DEI training with the management staff now, like in other kinds of trainings. Um, so it's also that kind of education. Um, and, you know, we, you know, we've had members or I've paid for members of staff to like go on stages and stuff like that in different parts of the country. We want that to be a bigger part of uh, post-pandemic life. So I mentioned a few of them. Um, uh, can, you know, is, you know, some of the uh, like community, if that's like, like building community, if that's a value, um, I'm not sure we would term it as such, but like, um, I definitely am inspired by um, um, people who look at empathy and uh, love in relationships and I'm trying to understand how those things impact our work in the hospitality, uh, you know, space. So empathy and love are clear values that I, I definitely uh, want to um, focus on as well. I think I've named enough, uh, enough of them, but those are some of the ones that we like literally wrote down and be like, Hey, this is what, you know, community means to us. And it's about like, I want to have, I've always had staff members who are artists and musicians or filmmakers and writers. And like, I want those people around me because I, you know, as an older, you know, white guy, I want to make sure that I'm always like questioning my, you know, like what I know. And the only, the best way for me to do that day in and day out is to try to surround myself with people who are doing, you know, things that I have never heard of before. Um, so, and with people that I don't know and me then learning about them. So I think that's important. So you need to have a flexible schedule and you need to be able, people need to be able to do their thing outside of work as well. So those are like part of the value system too. That's amazing. The, like the intention that you put into what you're doing is, is great. Cause I, I don't think, I mean, I've definitely worked and been around people that do that, but it's not the, the norm in our industry. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to say that I've like, I mean, these are my intentions. I, you know, I certainly have had times when, you know, like it's been hard to meet those goals for sure. And that's like a daily thing, you know, like, have I met these goals? Like, am I leading in a empathetic fashion? Am I not, you know, I, and, and am I leading with love? And like, I, I mean, I'm one person with, you know, uh, you know, as at the height of my numbers of employees, I had like 75 and like, I have, I mean, we, I have other things going on too. Um, so I make a lot of mistakes, you know, I forget about something important almost every day and I've got to like, make sure that I, you know, as best I can try to live up to these. That's why they're stated values because like you have to, they're, it's kind of like a, it's a contemplative practice. practice. Mm -hmm. You have to like state them every day and be like, am I doing this? Like, have I lived according to these values today? And if not, like, how could I do that tomorrow? You know? Yeah, but I, I think that like, you know, that that saying like shit rolls downhill, I think it goes the same way for for good intentions. Like those practices become ingrained in everyone coming from a strong leader down because they see those practices in work and how they affect them in their daily their what they're doing. And if it's yeah. beneficial and good for them, that's something that they start to carry with themselves too. I mean, I know every everyone that I've worked with that I the the values that I see in them that I think are, you know, like what I want to carry with me. Like I try to adopt those as quickly as possible and put them into my daily work. Right. I mean, I feel like I am like very, I'm, I'm like inspired, amazed by the energy that the 
like sort of the young hospitality people of Chicago have put into this year and the, the incredible like projects and work, but both from like a food standpoint, but also from, a, you know, like community-based, like mutual aid standpoint, like it's, it shames the older generation, my generation. And I think that, I mean, I don't know how old you all are, but you're younger than me. And like, you know, that's the, you deserve all the credit for getting people through the pandemic, not like, you know, <laughs> um, not, you know, my, um, my age group, because <laughs> I, I feel like, uh, you know, le- the government, you know, like obviously left a lot of people behind and um, the, uh, the incredible work of, uh, of the, the young industry uh, has been, you know, I, I know has been a lifesaver for a lot of people. I mean, I'm, I'm excited about what the future brings for this industry with with all of that, you know, energy and motion going forward. I think it's going to be, I think the next, you know, five years are going to be super transformative. And I'm super excited about what that brings. Because like you said, like just seeing everyone this past year just being like, this is what we want. This is what we're doing. This is how we're doing it. Like, come with us. We're taking you. We're all doing it together. I mean, I, I completely agree with you. I just hope that the, we find ways to make the economics work for people in ways that they can they can grow the future that they want to grow. Um, and I do think it's partly, uh, you know, um, my responsibility to fight for that. And, um, you know, I'm definitely, you know, my intention is to take that on um, in whatever way I can. I mean, it's still remains to be seen like what are the things that we can do to make those that future possible um and i am you know i'm here to continue to learn on about what what you know what i should do um uh, and uh and how i can do it so i mean that's you know that's my goal and i, I you know i know that um you know i'm sure i'll only get you know a, a fraction of where i want to get to um but i am I do think that uh, the work that's happening sort of in all of the, I mean, there's so many amazing like uh, food uh, businesses that have propped up this year. And I think that they will take, I mean, I hope that they take over and that's what everybody is, you know, everybody's talking about in the future. Uh, Speaking of the future, uh, what does your future look like? Well, um, uh, so I got to get Lula open up when it's safe. <laughs> um, so right now we're thinking only, really only about that. Um, so, you know, I've talked a lot about, you know, this is our chance to build something that um, centers uh, pay equity, that rethinks um, urgency and work ethic. Um, as Christina mentioned, like those things aren't, you know, um, evil in and of themselves. So like we have to find good and just ways of being urgent and ethical in our work. Um, So we are really literally just talking about that and, you know, creating these sort of like NASA level, like simulations of what work life will be like. And I'm doing things like I never thought I would do, like saying like, well, hell with filling waters and let's put a bus stop in the middle of the room because that's going to create a more efficient workspace. And I used to always be opposed to so many things that I'm saying yes to now. Um, And 
going from a place that um, where you say, stop, think, there must be a harder way of doing this, which is a quote from Zuni Cafe cookbook. Um, and the idea there was like, oh, we're not going to buy guanciale, we're going to make it. Or no, we're not going to make guanciale, we're going to raise a pig on a farm that we own. And no, we're not going to own the farm, it's going to be a cooperative farm. Or no, we're not going to, you know, it's like, how deep can you go? And like, I still really respect all that stuff, but like, um, and you know, I still, we're still going to make pancetta or whatever we're going to make, but, uh, we have to find ways of doing it that, um, are less labor intense so that we can manage the, the difficulty of the work so that we can have a little bit smaller staff and pay them better. That's like what my goal is. Smaller staff paid better. Doesn't work. The sous chefs aren't working hundred hours a week. That's like what I want to do. Um, and then once Lula is, you know, in that place, uh, I mean, I do, I am working on a cookbook. Um, so I have a cookbook that I need to finish because I told the people that putting it out that I would finish it. So I'm working on that. Um, and, um, I still, uh, am partners with the, the guys at Supercon International. So I, uh, I help, um, you know, I advise and do things for them. Um, and I also, uh, have a foundation of that works on food education, um, called pilot Light, and pilot light has had a really interesting pivot this year. Um, and I'm super, I'm you know, super like, you know, um, proud of what's happened there. And so, um, there's a lot of work to be done and with pilot light, we've, um, the pandemic has sort of allowed us to, um, create, um, accessible education uh, for kids, uh, you know, beyond Chicago, but also um, it, it's just, it's connected people in, in so many ways this year and it's really exploding with energy and purpose. Uh, and so I'm also working on that. So those are the things, the future for me is like, I mean, this whole like build back better thing that kind of bite, bite in, um, Aphorism is like something that I think is like a real possibility for our industry. If it's, if people are, um, uh, you know, intentioned and purposeful enough and mm -hmm. put their money where their mouth is. Um, and I want to do that. I, you know, I'm definitely am not, uh, I'm not there and I'm not, you know, proud of, uh, where I am yet and got a lot of work to do. So, um, I, you know, I got to put my head down and get it done. I also got two kids, so I have to make sure I, don't become like toxically imbalanced myself, you know? Sure. Uh, I mean, you've kind of touched on all of these things throughout the entire podcast, but uh, for our last question, what does the future of hospitality look like to you? Um, I think the hospitality, the reckoning that the hospitality movement is having right now its future is in creating new food policy for the country. So I don't, um, I don't have like a, a vision of exactly how that's going to go, but I know that the people who are, um, the, the really important work that's happened, like, I don't know, like community kit, you know, like, like Edmar and, uh, you know, like the community kitchen stuff and like, all that kind of that, that that kind of work is going to inform food policy in the United States, and you'll see other types of things besides just. I mean, you already do besides just your your restaurant economy. I think like it's going to impact the way the economics of 
of food and hospitality in the United States in a really profound way. I don't think that it's going to be uh, people like me are not the ones who are going to build that future. I mean, I'm going to be honest. I think it's, uh, I think that I am going to do my best to, to learn from what's happened and to create a really, um, a really positive impact on my own, but the future is already ahead of me and those people are already moving really fast. And I, I think they're going to impact, uh, you know, the next generation. I mean, this is my hope because otherwise I'm going to die thinking that the world is worse than I entered it. And that's shitty. If you have children and you're supposed to like, I mean, I literally have a kid who'd be like, I don't want to go to Mars. You know I mean? Like I want this world to be a better place in my lifetime. And like, I, and there's actually like literal real panic in that, you know, um, nine-year-old's voice. And like, I, I do not want to fail at, you know, making the thing better than when I entered it. Um, and so, I mean, that makes, I have to make the right decisions like on a daily basis to show that like, you know, good leadership is possible. Um, sustainable economies are possible. And, you know, even if I fail, if I go down with it, at least that you know, I'll go down trying. Like I do, I do need to do that. And so, you know, I know that, you know, I've been doing this a long time and, you know, I've certainly um, failed a lot. So I'm really trying to learn from my mistakes and failures in a positive way, like really trying to remind myself to do the right thing um, and to um, build on the things that I've learned so that I don't continue to make mistakes or allow mistakes to happen around me that are not about making the world better. So I don't know. That's what I see the future of it being. A lot of love and um, a lot of, I mean, a, a lot of improvements over the way we, the health and safety of the people in food. Um, hopefully that answers the question. I don't definitely don't see it clearly, but I'm going to try. Yeah, that was great. Uh, Magro, you have any other questions? I just want to say, uh, as someone who's never met you in person, um, that you, I know for at least us on this podcast and a lot of other guests that we've talked to, are a shining example of what we would aspire to be as a small business owner because in, in my personal opinion, I feel like you've done the right thing before it was cool to do the right thing. You were supporting farmers before it was trendy. You were equitably hiring people before because it's the right thing to do. You can feel all of that when you walk in to Lula. You can feel your values. The moment, like as somebody who has worked within this industry my entire adult life, it's just um, something that I really admire. And I just want to say, like, thank you for giving us an example. Although it may not be perfect, like, thank you for uh, just giving us a shining light and be and and letting us use you an example of saying it can be done. We see it being done. You just choose not to do it. So thank you for everything that you've done, everything that you're going to do, and the things that you continue to do right now. I mean, I, I appreciate you saying that. Thank you. I mean, I, I hope that, uh, I mean, I hope that like, you know, 
I hope that people who um, are talking in the way that we've been taught, I mean, I know these conversations are happening everywhere. And I hope that people talking about them are given the resources they need to make the changes that they want to make. Um, and I hope that the, the resources are plentiful and that they're given without a lot of strings. You know what I mean? Because I, but I do, I do believe that you, that, uh, the um, the industry um, needs to, I, I mean, it needs to uh, think, I mean, I don't even know. I mean, like, what does the industry mean anymore? I mean, we're talking about a really specific, like, kind of set of restaurants and everything. So, like, in some ways, you need to, like, kill this part of the industry and just come back and say, like, um, you know, people who make food and create food experiences together, like, this is an open this is open water. You know what I mean? Like we can go where we want to go. And, um, I just hope that there are enough people willing to, to give up resources and to share resources so that those people who choose to go in new places get the opportunity to do it. Um, and I mean, me personally, I, I just, you know, I want to be clear that I, um, I'm like Lula's a work in progress and, um, I've always, I mean, me personally, I've always been a little bit nervous about how like incomplete Lula feels all the time. And um, sometimes I I think that I'm a little like uh, sensitive about like wanting to be like this like real restaurant and not a cafe or not something thrown together. Um, and what I'm realizing is that it's kind of a blessing. Like I, you know, we were incomplete on purpose and like, you know, we are learning as we go and listen and you know listening and educating ourselves and my hope is that that doesn't change at all like that it keeps going like this at least for a while as long as i can do it and that i grow as a person from my you know like i said earlier like like legitimate failures at being the person i want to be and like the human there's also just a sort of like human capacity that you come against all the time so like learning about like where my capacity is and like what I, what I've done wrong. Um, and, uh, and turning that into like, you know, uh, the possibility for change in education. Like that's like, that's the best I can do with this. And then, um, I'm also, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm really hopeful that the spirit that, you know, that we had together, like uh, me, our employees me and my employees and, uh, also the guests that came in, like, I really hope that comes back. Because I think, uh, you know, it's not for sure that it will, you know what I mean? Like the industry is like, everybody's talking about like, okay, like when we're back, when we're back, but like, you know, it might not be, it might be a hard slog for a long time. And so uh, I'm, you know, like we need to be patient and um, we, this might take a few years before the like dreamscape that I have in my head is realized. So I think everybody needs to be patient and, and work um, steadily, but um, and respectfully together, because uh, it, it's going to take some time. But I appreciate you saying that; I, I really do, and uh, I enjoy talking about this stuff, as you can tell. So, <laughs> hopefully, it didn't take too much of your time. No, we uh, we really appreciate you being so generous with your time and joining us here today. It's uh, like I said, we 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 talk about you quite frequently on here, and as Maga was just saying, like you do provide a lot in the way of like for something for us to look forward to in the work that we do, the work that other people are doing. Like, uh, 
and we know that you're very busy, so we appreciate you taking the time to to talk to us today. Oh, uh, we're very no, totally. Busy. This is this is like my I don't know what this is, but this is this the philosophy around these things is like my life and what I think about all the time. So <laughs> it's a ple- it's a pleasure. It's a total pleasure to do it. So cool. Well, uh, you thank guys you for well. being here. Yeah. Thank yeah. you for tuning yeah. in, everyone. Uh, and remember to please hustle responsibly. You know, I'm actually going to say something. If anybody ever wants any, like I brought up a couple of times, like it, you need to reach out. Like I, um, I want to make sure that people who have questions about the the grant or who have interest in like have something that they want to do at Lula or whatever can find me and reach me. And I just want to say, obviously it's really easy to find people these days and you can send me a DM or whatever, but I'm totally into that. And I invite people if they heard me say something that they think is wrong or not right to like reach out and have a conversation about it. I didn't want to interrupt you making your last statement, but I just want to say like, I'm open to that. And like, I want to, uh, I want to help out. So if anybody has any questions, like find me and, and let's talk. We can also add that like in the info underneath on Spotify and on YouTube, like your contact information, if anyone wants any further questions or anything like that, I can definitely do that. Thousand thousand percent down. Great. Thank you. Okay. Sorry, Matt. I didn't mean to interrupt. (laughs) You're you're all good, man. It's all good. Okay. Uh, Well, thank you for tuning in and for being here. And remember to please hustle responsibly.